talk with Chris about doing this, I uh, made sure that the uh, Saturday evening session would go four hours. Yes. No one is tired after a day in the sun and walking, so um, I will definitely not be doing that long. Um, uh, Want to uh, remind you, I've got more papers if you want to on phase two here. Get a fresh sheet of paper to write on stuff. Um, yell at Cameron, he'll pass it over that way. If you want for how many would like another sheet of paper? You got about six, seven out this way. So let's put up the uh, what I covered this morning. Quick wait, uh, quick look at review. We're looking at the fact that uh, people as image bearers and as fallen image bearers relate with each other. And in our relationships with each other, we harm each other by sinning against each other. There's a great, um, uh, there's this fun story. Um, Larry Crabb said he had a young couple come in to see him. They had just been married several months. And they said, uh, uh, this thing isn't isn't working right. Uh, you know, we've been married, and ever since we've been married, we've been fighting and yelling at each other, and we're, we're, we're not getting along, and marriage is not working. And Dr. Crabb said, no, on, on the contrary, marriage is working exactly how God designed it. Uh, Proverbs says that a man's malice can be concealed by his lips, but his wickedness is made known in an assembly. That as soon as you get people together, you know what we find out? We're sinners. And when you marry, you will marry a sinner. And they will marry a sinner. And you have the delightful task of how do you love and minister to a sinner. And um, this, what you see in marriage, is true within any community. Gang, if, if, if we were to stay at camp uh, for another two weeks, I have enough navigator experience with camps, in the third week, you would start to th see things fall apart. And there would be arguments, there would be disagreements, we would start to clash with each other, because we can put up a good show for a short period of time. But what ends up happening is that we will fail each other and sin against each other, and that delightful reality takes over. And this is why you see in the history churches split, and they get, people get angry, and you know, all of these things start to happen. So remember we talked about there were two things that took place. The cause and effect universe that God's created, that we have no choice of the matter. Uh, when we sin against somebody, we will experience guilt or the shame from our moral failure and they will experience the pain from being sinned against. They were built to be loved. If you're not loved, it hurts. You're built for impact. If you have no impact, you will hurt. If you um, uh, uh, seek or want significance as you were built for, but people treat you as insignificant, you will hurt. That is a reality. So here's what I'd like you to do with someone sitting next to you. I'd like you to put on your thinking caps. We're going to get a little philosophical question here. And I'm not going to give you tons of time, but I'd like you to come up with the ideas you already possess. First question is this. Is pain good or bad? 
Go. <laughs> Okay, now that you've thoroughly answered that question philosophically, uh, you should easily have handled that in that amount of time. Now I'm going to ask you another question that I'd like you to engage with each, with each other, and that is this. What is God's view of pain? How does God view pain? Have at it. Oh, so we're going to have someone stand up and tell us the answer. I don't know if you know that my wife Susie uh, teaches Old Testament at, at Desert to the freshmen. And uh, it's quite uh, amazing to watch um, and to hear from her what happens. Because these are some, some of these ideas she brings up to these freshmen in high school. And uh, invariably, she will have kids say to her or write out, if I was God, I would never have allowed pain. And freshmen think this. I, th I think a lot more people think this than freshmen. And my answer always is, and I'm sure glad you're not God. <laughs> because the God who is there has allowed for this. And in his wisdom, in his power, in his understanding of things, uh, he sees an importance here. Uh, I, I heard someone say that one of the biggest differences between Christianity and Islam is that Christianity has a God who has suffered. And there is a difference there to suffer. Here's one of those realities. Our God has suffered pain. On both sides, of the, on the side of the equation of the pain of our failure, he received that. And he suffered on the side of receiving what should have been our punishment upon himself and suffered that. So there is something about this God that we speak of and talk about in his understanding or use and knowledge of pain and suffering that is um, uh, deep, it is mysterious, it is uh, difficult and hard. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to be in this passage this evening for the majority of our time. I'd like to read it, and I would love to have you follow along in your Bible. I'm going to begin in verse 3. I'm going to speak to two sections of this, but um, I, I want us to read starting in verse 3. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received 
from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened to us, that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. When I was beginning to learn some of this stuff, this passage jumped out at me, particularly verse 9. Paul is expressing and talking about the, the, the hard times he had been having in Turkey. We know from the book of Acts that he um, twice received 39 lashes which means they tore his back open completely, ripped all the skin away off his back twice. You know, the first time that happens, you go, I'm going into this ignorant, I'm not sure what this is going to be like, but having been through that, probably painful. Probably an incredible amount of pain. To now face it a second time is much more difficult. As you all know, you might have been through something painful once. To go through it a second time is even worse. Because now it's, you're not dealing with ignorance. Now you know what it's like. And I don't know if Paul is addressing you know, the fact that he was facing this again. And he was looking at it and the pressure, he said, was beyond his ability to endure it. You know, and we all think the Apostle Paul went around happy and, you know, he was victorious and everything was great and wonderful. And he, he says it here, he said, uh, I wanted to die. This was so bad, I just would rather have died and be done with it. And then he has this little bitty phrase, but this happened to us. Why? that we might not rely on ourselves. Remember this morning, what's the definition of a fool? Somebody who trusts themselves. It's interesting, in Paul's theology, he said, God put me through this because it was an opportunity for me not to trust myself, but God. So I said this morning, why is it that God allows these things to happen? 
in this instance with Paul, and I believe it's far more common instance, God is bringing, allowing something to happen to Paul to bring him to a point where he would go, will I trust me or will I trust God? C.S. Lewis said, pain convinces us we are not in control. That's why ninth graders say, if I was God, I wouldn't have any of this crud. Everything would be happy. Because if you were in control as God, you would not be anywhere near like the God we have. So what I want to point out here is this, and I'm going to start it from the pain side, but I believe it works on both. And that is this. When we experience pain, we face a dividing point of decision. What will you do with your pain? This is one of those questions that I would like you to begin to percolate and look at yourself and go, what do you do with your pain? Because if this is correct with our pain, we face a choice. What am I going to do with it? And there's two directions to go. I can either go to God with my pain, or I will deal with my pain on my terms. Two options. I take it to God, or I deal with it. If I trust myself, and I know what happens, I'm in the midst of the pain, Satan says to me, God obviously doesn't love you, he allowed this to happen to you, you can't trust God, and we go, that's true. I don't trust God. Why would I trust a God that would allow that to happen to me? So, I trust me. I've got to deal with the pain. And we take off on a path to go, I will deal with my pain. So here's a, another little thing I'd like you to do with one another. From your observations of life at this point, what have you seen? How do you see people deal with their pain? Not talking about you. I'm not asking you to share what you do. But what you observe when you watch other people. What have you observed? What do other people do with their pain? Go. Okay. Um, what I want to do is, is, as I've observed and seen things, as, as I read about it and, and, and look at it, I'm going to some, put some up, and undoubtedly they're going to be things that you've already observed. If... If I am in pain, and now I have to deal with my pain, I think there are, there are five general things that people choose to do with their pain. So let's go to the first one. One of the things that people love to do when they're in pain, if I've got to deal with it, is I deny it. What I'm going to say is that I don't hurt. They say that. This is like Monty Python's In Search of the Holy Grail with the Black Knight. And we're going to get at this little river thing, and we're going to have this sword fight. He's going to cut off his arm, and the Black Knight goes, 
Only a flesh wound. You haven't really hurt me. And he cuts off his other arm. And what does he say? It's a scratch. Cuts off his legs. And the guy is yelling at him like, and we laugh at that. Because it is so obviously an assault on the reality that someone would face. That's why it's funny. It's an assault on logic. Somebody with their arm cut off is not going to go, that's just a flesh wound. A flesh wound is a little scratch. You hack off the arm, that's appalling. That's hugely painful. I, I cannot tell you the number of kids at school that I have dealt with who come from broken homes where their parents divorced. And I said, was that painful? And they'll look at you and go, no. Wow. How are they coping with the pain? To deny it, which, by the way, within our culture has been taught them by the adults. When adults divorce, each part party wants to appear to their kids and to their community as the noble strugglers. It's difficult and it's hard. And we don't want the kids to come in and go, you know, your choice has ruined my life. And the parents go, you're not going to say that. And if they do, they probably get slapped or they get shut down or they get shamed into being quiet because what we've told kids of divorce, you have to be quiet. You cannot speak to the damage your parents' sin has done to you. So many of those kids go, then the way to deal with it is to deny that it hurts. Let's ask, does denial deal with pain? I, you know, nurses, we guys are great because as we get older and we get more hurts and painful things and things come along, we don't want to go to doctors. And our wives will ask us, you know, are, are you don't no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And we end up with a great deal of denial until we can't walk or something is, you know, obviously so horribly wrong that we end up and they go, why didn't you go into the doctor before? <clears throat> didn't want to be bothered. Didn't want to admit that I, that something was wrong. Why? Because denial lets us continue to believe everything's okay. And it's not. And so the thing that you have to ask is, does denial work? Well, to a point it works. But does it actually deal with the pain, with the wound? And the answer is no. Denial to a wound, if we go to the physical, which I believe the physical illustrates the spiritual, if you get an arrow in your, in your shoulder and the arrow is sticking out of your shoulder, you can walk around and go, it's nothing, I'm fine. But as the arrow stays in there, over time, what happens to it? It festers, gets infected. And it will kill you. 
is denying the wounds of sin going to make us healthy? The answer is no. I think the, the admonition in the book of James about a root of bitterness is huge in this. Because what will happen in the wound as we deny it is that it will fester. And it will become septic and infected. And it will impact us relationally moving forward. And we see this in the divorce things with the kids. Because the kids are all now going, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to go through that pain. Thinking that if they shack up with somebody, they won't have the pain of somebody leaving them. And they do. But it's because there's denial. The problem is marriage. It isn't the sin and the wound. So... Denial is one that many people like to take, and they just go, and when you talk to people, and you hear stories, and you go, did that hurt? And they go, no. You're going, oh, I, I've learned something about this person. Here's how they deal with their pain. They deny it. By the way, you're going to see it on the other side, on guilt. I think we see it easier on pain than we do with guilt. But I believe the way that you deal with your pain is also the way you deal with your guilt. You've chosen your way to deal with it because you think it's brilliant. And it will work on both sides of the equation. So denial works for pain, denial works for guilt. I didn't do that. I'm in denial. I didn't hurt you. And have you ever tried to talk to someone who's hurt you and they deny it? It is really infuriating because <laughs> they won't admit what they've done. They're in denial. I didn't do anything wrong. A second way that we deal with pain on our own is shame. And here I'm going to use the ungodly shame. Paul says it in Corinthians. There is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. There is an ungodly sorrow that leads to death. Anything in the fall has now got two sides of it. The shame that should rightfully come when you do something wrong, righteous shame should lead you to repentance. The sorrow over doing a moral failure is a good thing. It is not a negative thing. And it is, it is God's invitation to go, I've done wrong, I need to make it right. But there is an ungodly shame. And it is a shame that leads to death. Why do I know? Because this is how I deal with pain. Here's how shame works. I was driving home in Kenya one night from Alliance High School at 10 o'clock, driving through Kawuari, about the third or fourth largest slum area in Nairobi. The road went right through there to, towards our house. Driving through Kawuari, I got a flat tire. My left rear went flat. And I could feel it going flat, 10 o'clock at night, in Kaunguari, and I go, what do I do? And I thought, you know, there's a lamp post here, there's a light, I can change a tire really fast. I'll do that. So I stop, get out, I had a van, the spare tire was locked around a chain in the back of the van, 
I got out the tire iron and I started working on the left rear when a Matatu, which are these small minibuses in Kenya, pulls up on the road coming through. And eight guys get off the, the bus and walk over to me and go, we'd like to help you. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I'm fully capable, and I'm trying to figure out how do I politely tell these guys, guys really appreciate it, but I, you know, I, I can get it, thank you very much. And they said, no, no, no. One of the guys takes the tire iron away from me, starts working on the thing. And another guy is helping him with the jack. And I'm sitting there going, okay, God, what do I do? Because I, I can tell you in my gut, I didn't feel safe. And I'm going, I'm not sure what I should do here. So I walked around to the back of my van and uh, where the tire was locked up and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I see one of the guys open the front door of my van and take my briefcase out. And I walked back around and I said, sir, you can have my, my, my uh, briefcase. You don't need to steal it. And the guy hauls off and hits me as hard as he can in the face. Just punch me. By the way, it saved my life. Because the guy with the tire iron had come up from behind and was bringing it down to hit me on the head. And had the tire iron hit me in the head, would have fractured my skull. Um, probably, who knows what would have happened. But because the guy punched me and pushed my head over, and the tire iron hit me in the shoulder. And God spoke to me right then. And God said, fall down and pretend you're knocked out. And just, you know, in those types of things, time slows down. And it was like God said, fall down and pretend you're knocked out. And I was quite chuffed, English word. I was quite pleased with myself that I had taken this guy's best shot in the face and it hadn't knocked me out. <laughs> I'm going, wow, I did well there. <laughs> All of this is in a nanosecond going. So I fall on the ground, and the, guy, the guys gather around me. I have my eyes closed. They take my shoes off, take the keys to the car, take my wallet, leave me on the ground, and they walk away. And I'm sitting there going, now how long do you keep your eyes closed and pretend you're knocked out? Because you don't want to just sort of sit back up, and they're sitting at the back of the van. You know, so I listened for a long time, made sure they were gone, and I sat up and they were gone. I got mugged. You know what I did for the next two weeks? I blamed me for that. It was my fault. I got mugged. This is what changed. John, it was your fault you got mugged. should never have stopped, you idiot. You should have kept driving. It's a lot cheaper to pay for a new rim and a new tire than to get mugged or killed or beaten up on the road. You're so stupid. You shouldn't have done that. And on and on and on it goes. How do you deal with the pain of someone sending you against you? You blame yourself. You know what that does? 
You know who, who, that, put, who that puts in control when you do that? You. See, if I can figure out how to do everything right, nothing wrong will happen to me. It's brilliant, folks. All you got to do is figure out the right thing to do every time, and you'll never get hurt. And then my wife asked me, now, did Jesus get things right? And what happened to him? See, shame, what we do is pour contempt on ourselves to deal with our pain because then we're still in charge. And the fool trusts himself. You can't sit there and go, you know, I was mistreated. And they did to me what nobody should do to anybody. And it ain't right. But if I do that, I'm not in control. And I find amongst many Christians, that's what we do. When we're sinned against, we blame ourselves. And heap shame on ourselves to deal with our pain. And I ask you, does shame deal with the pain? Does pain go away because of shame? No. It does not deal with it. It allows me to think I'm still in control. But it doesn't deal with the pain. Third thing that we try to do is that we pour contempt. Now, the shame is focused inward. One way to deal with pain is to focus it outward. And so Proverbs says, when there is evil, there is contempt. I think it's a fascinating idea. When evil shows up, contempt shows up. And one of the ways that we deal with contempt, one of the ways we can deal with it is to pour it on other people. So you did this to me, I'm now going to pour contempt on you. And that contempt will come out in many ways. And this is what Western literature has been doing for the last 2,000 years, is dealing with this whole thing of, does revenge work? The Man in the Iron Mask explores this whole thing. An injustice is done to me is the way to deal with my pain to get even, to get back, to um, repay you. So we have a, a, a concept in sociology called reciprocity. You've all experienced this when somebody came to your house at Christmas time and they brought you a present. And they said, we, we just wanted to give you something for Christmas. And you haven't gotten a present for them for Christmas. And so you're very polite and you accept it. And you feel inside of you this compulsion. i got to go get them something. They did something positive for me. The notion is I should, in reciprocity, be reciprocal. I should do something nice for them. Positive reciprocity. Negative you do something bad to me, that gives me permission with my contempt 
to get even. Why? Because in getting even, I will deal with my pain. There's this thought that if I can tear you apart, the pleasure I will get from that will deal with my pain. So let me get even. So a friend of mine was driving down the road in Tucson, and a guy cut him off. And he got quite upset with that and pulled around in front of the bot guy that cut him off and got in front of him and was coming into an intersection and had his uh, blinker on to turn left and had the guy behind him and was slowing down and getting really slow and finally at the last minute in front of the intersection turned right and left the guy and had him miss the light. I got even. I thought, I, I know how you deal with your pain. We do this as nations. This is, this is how the whole Cold War was. And it's that cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes where Calvin comes out with 65 water balloons to face Hobbes. And he says, Hobbes, if you throw one water balloon at me, you're going to get 100 back. And Hobbes tosses the one water balloon at him, and he drops them all, you know, to, you know, to not get hit by this one, destroys all of, his, of all, all of his way of getting back. And so we have this quote, revenge is the poison that we brew to kill the person who harmed us, that we then drink. Does contempt deal with your pain? The answer is no. But we think it might. Next one that we deal with is rage. Anger. You're going to hurt me. You are going to get it back in anger from me. And we're not talking just slight discomfort. We're talking full-on the rage is going to get, get to you. I, in my anger, will get, and this is part of the contempt thing. It's a little bit different because not everybody in contempt gets angry. Many people in contempt can smile while they dismember you. And they're being very pleasant about it. The person with rage doesn't play that game. They are going to shut you down. They're going to make you so fearful, you will never do that to them again. Why? My rage allows me to feel like I'm in control, and it threatens you from ever doing that to me again. Does it deal with pain? No. In fact, this is a reason many people like this. Anger is a whole lot easier to live with than pain. Because in anger, you still feel like you're in control. When you're in pain, you're not in control. So we'll quickly shoot to the anger because then I still feel like I'm in control. And then the last one. When we're hurting, what do we like to do? Medicate. So... You got a bad tooth, you call the dentist up, give me something so that you can do what? We can deal with the pain, medicating. Now, 
People medicate in many ways to deal with their pain. Alcohol is one. We're going to drown our sorrows. We even say it in our vernacular. I'm going to take alcohol and drink enough of it so that I stop hurting. By the way, does medication actually deal with the pain? It masks it. But as soon as the medication wears off, what returns? The pain. So it's like going, um, I, if I medicate, I'm not actually dealing with what is the source. What the dentist needs to do is actually pull my tooth or fill it or do whatever to deal with because the pain is merely telling you something's wrong here and you got to deal with the thing that's wrong. Whereas most of us think pain is the problem. Pain is not the problem. What was the problem? The sin done against me. That's the problem. Not the pain. But that would require that I have to do something related to the sin done against me. And I'm the victim. Somebody's done this to me. <laughs> Medication does not work in dealing with your pain. And uh, pornography, sexual addiction, most men are involved in that to deal with their pain. To deal with their relational pain. So we're going to watch that and do that because for, for at least a little while, it numbs it for me. Doesn't do anything to what's the actual issue. Drugs, alcohol, I don't know what your addiction is. It could be eating gallons of ice cream. And then when you're down or whatever, what I'm going to do with my pain is I'm going to eat three gallons of ice cream. And that'll deal with my pain. Medicating does not deal with the pain. It is another example of going, I am going to trust me to know what's best to deal with my pain. This happened to us so that I, we would not rely on ourselves. God does not want us to go that way. By the way, those are the same five ways that people deal with their guilt. So you look at sin and you, you talk to people because of sin. Some will deny it. Some will beat them. And here's the funny thing. That's why it's so interesting with me that I will use the ungodly shame to beat myself up over the sin that I've committed. It doesn't lead me to repentance. It leads me to a renewed effort to make sure that I control my life, that I never do that again. That's not dealing with my guilt. That's me taking charge. <coughs> and this is what we as people do. And the reason I've drawn it off this way is, is because if we choose to deal with our pain in these ways, it does nothing to bring redemption or restoration over what was done. It does not deal with the wound. The wound is still there. Because that wound is what's causing the pain. And the wound hasn't been dealt with. What we're going to do tomorrow morning is to look at, okay, so what does it look like to take this to God? But I want to take you back to 2 Corinthians 1 again. 
Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort. What do you really believe about God? When you are sinned against, does God care? Does it break God's heart the way it's breaking yours? And we come to conclusions to go, no, God doesn't care. He's sitting on the throne. He's the great majesty, the great king. He's dictating to the angels what to do. And you're down here bleeding and he couldn't care less. That's a lie. Out of the pit of hell. And notice what he says. That it, it's, he's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. What I will address tomorrow morning is, what is it like to take my pain to God to let him minister comfort to me? Is that what we do with our pain? And what I believe is that you will discover about yourself related to whether you trust yourself or not in what do you do with your pain? So when someone sins against you, what do you do? Do you rage? Do you stew? Do you beat yourself up? Do you deny it? Do you try and go medicate? Then all that's revealing is you trust you. Who you trust is yourself. And why did God allow this? So that you wouldn't trust yourself. Lewis said it another way. He said, pain is God's megaphone. Are we listening? When we're in pain, do we listen and go, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want to do? Because one thing I know God does not want me to do is trust me. I trust him. To rely on and depend on God and go, God, here I am, wounded, broken, hurting. Can you comfort me? Would you comfort me? Are you willing to comfort me? And what I believe is, none of us does this. Which is interesting because in light of the rest of the chapters, it says that the comfort we receive from God is what is now the resource for me to turn around and comfort others. Would you say that the first word that comes to mind when you think of the Christian community is the quality of comfort? Compassion? Susie asked the kids, the freshmen, what should Christians be known for? And a large set of answers that come back from the kids are, they answer, being right. (laughs) 
that is a sad reflection of what we've taught them. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to be right. We should be known for our love, which, by the way, comes out of compassion and comfort, kindness, ways in which we minister to people. Why do we not have that? Because I don't believe we actually experience what it's like to go to God and have God minister comfort to us. We're too busy trying to deal with our pain on our own terms. That's part of my thesis here. That what God is inviting us to do is to go, we are going to be hurt. Will we go to him? And, and receive from him the comfort, the, the mercy, the kindness. And so the songs we were singing, I, I, that, I was struck by it. That one that talked about the mount of God's redeeming love. We think that's where the mount of God's redeeming love is. Over here. And we don't think it's over here. So when you think, the mount of redeeming love, God wants to deal with your pain. And what do we believe? How do we act? So there's, a, there's, there's an interesting thing here. By the way, all victims can become agents. <clears throat> when we are sinned against and we choose to now start to deal with our pain on our terms, we have now sinned against God. So we were sinned against, and now what we've done is to compound it by now our sinning against God and going, I'm not going to trust you. I will not rely on you. I won't depend on you. And so victims become agents. So, question that I'd like you to ponder, give some thought to, is this. How do you deal with your pain. Probably a good enough student of yourself to know what is it that I tend to do when I'm hurt? How do I handle it? And that begins a, the first step to go, well, if that's how I'm, how I'm dealing with it, how does God want me to deal with it? Becomes the application. What is God inviting us to? I was talking to Pastor Chris before he left today. And one of the things I really appreciate about Chris is that he is a man who understands and practices solitude and silence. It's a very important discipline spiritually that I don't think is certainly not American to stop and be still and to sit there and listen to God. It's, it's a little bit how we approach doctors. Bill, I'm sure you've seen this. That we walk into a doctor and we go, fix me now. And if you don't fix me now, I'm going to sue you. 
<laughs> and it's such a demanding attitude that we have in this country that we, we walk into these doctors and expect them to be God. And yet, how do we approach God with this? Hey, get down here, God. You need to do this with me right now. And I need you to comfort me and make me well and do it this instant. And that's why I like to look at the, the Gospels and see how the sick and the infirm approach Jesus. I, I, I don't see one of them that's demanding of God. Desperate, yes. So maybe pain is there so that it'll whet our appetite to be desperate for God. And if you're not desperate for God, this is the question of why. Because it is the sick. He came to save those who need a physician. Not the well. We're not well. We're broken. We've been impacted. And I close with this. I find it so fascinating in Isaiah that Isaiah says about Jesus, prophetically looking forward, that he is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And that's the Old Testament's proclamation about Jesus. That doesn't mean that Jesus never laughed, never had a good time. never. But Jesus understood living in a fallen world. Your life is going to be filled with sorrow and grief. And how do you handle that? Where do you go with that? Is the question all of us face. How are we going to handle that?